When an accident happens, humans are always at the heart of the story. The first characters we see are the victims. Broken bodies, distraught families, dazed survivors. As the narrative grows, we hear about the heroes. The rescue workers running toward the danger. The pilot who performed a miracle. The quick-thinking console operator who stopped things being much worse. But you can't make a good story with just damsels in distress and knights in shining armour. We want to know why disaster struck, and too often we confuse finding an explanation with finding someone to blame. You're listening to DisasterCast, Episode 2. Hi everyone, and welcome to the second episode of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. This episode is called Blame the Operator, and in each section we'll examine a different aspect of human performance. In our Something New segment, we'll give a brief overview of the human contribution to safety, focusing on performance-shaping factors. In Something Old, We'll discuss BA Flight 5390, a tale of maintenance error, pilot defenestration, and flight crew professionalism. In Something Out of the Blue, we'll consider the idea of doing away with humans altogether, and whether that would prevent accidents, or be an accident all of its own. All accidents, by definition, involve humans. How much we choose to blame the humans varies wildly. Described neutrally, most accidents involve putting a human into a situation where correct behaviour is critical, and where the human didn't behave correctly. One of the most important developments in safety science is understanding that there's very little we can do to change human behaviour directly, but that there is a lot we can do to change situations. Here are a few examples taken from James Reason's excellent book, The Human Contribution. In railways, a signal passed at danger, or SPAD, is essentially where a train goes past a signal telling the driver to stop. It appears to be a human problem. The signalling system works correctly, but we also rely on the driver to obey the signals. Only it turns out that 30% of spads occur at 1% of the signals. The inevitable conclusion is that the problem is the signals, not the drivers. They might work correctly, but their location, their visibility, and how often they change creates an error-prone situation. In air travel, most accidents involve controlled flight into terrain, or CFIT. 
Again, it appears to be a human problem. The aircraft is working correctly, but the crew fly it into the ground. Most seafit accidents occur during particular shapes of approach towards airfields though, suggesting that the flight situation is to blame. Technology matters too. Half of all seafit accidents occur in aircraft without ground proximity warning systems, despite the fact that only 3% of aircraft don't have these systems. In chemotherapy, there are a number of commonly used drugs which are injected into the spine. There is one drug, vincristine, which is incredibly dangerous if injected in this way. Injecting vincristine into the spine is a well-known and usually lethal human error. It turns out that this error is far more common when vincristine is stored with other drugs or given on the same day as other drugs. In other words, the situation creates the error. Reason calls these types of situations error traps. More generally, we talk about performance shaping factors. I prefer this term myself because it matches our understanding that even talking about human error can be unhelpful. Human performance varies over time and between people. Sometimes we want people to follow the rules strictly, sometimes we want them to be innovative. Kim Vicente describes some nuclear power plant operators who were required to undertake a certification test in a simulator. The focus of the test was on coping with emergencies. Regularly, they would be criticised for failing to follow exact procedures, even though the procedures were not the best way of achieving the desired goals. Eventually they got fed up with this, and decided to follow the rules exactly. By following the letter of the procedures, they got stuck in an infinite loop, repeating the same actions over and over. This time, they got criticised for malicious procedural compliance. I've got no idea if this story is true or not, but it makes an important point. If we think our rules and procedures are perfect, then we should use robots to operate our equipment. Computers are far better than humans at repeatedly following instructions exactly. The reason we don't use robots is because we want the extra capability that humans bring. This means we need to design our equipment and procedures to allow for humans to be human. Anyway, back to performance shaping factors. There are any number of different classification schemes for human factors. A good example is the Maintenance Error Decision Aid, META, developed by Boeing. META helps in the investigation of maintenance errors by looking beyond the immediate error to the factors that surround it. Here are some of the biggest performance shaping factors, in no particular order. Number one, fatigue. Fatigue is not just about getting enough sleep, it's about matching work and rest patterns. Humans have a daily cycle called the circadian rhythm, which controls our body temperature and how energetic we feel. Changing shifts or time zones disrupts this pattern, so we can be well slept, but still unfit for work. Number two, stress. Stress is a pretty broad category. Physical stresses are things that make us uncomfortable. Too much or too little heat, humidity, confined spaces, noise, that sort of thing. Social stresses are things outside of the immediate work that cause us anxiety. Group pressures, fear of discipline, 
trouble at home. The body itself can be a source of stress too. Medication, alcohol, drugs, or illness. Number three, arousal. There's a sweet spot between being too bored and being too busy. Too little arousal and people become drowsy or distracted. Too much arousal causes stress, panic, and tunnel vision. Number four, workload. There's a general pattern that people follow to cope with too much work. They start to tune out some information. They start to trade off accuracy for speed. They start postponing things that are not time sensitive. They start accepting things that are less than ideal. They try to redistribute work. And eventually, they abandon the work. Number five, supervision. Some sources say that 80% of all maintenance errors involve poor supervision. But supervision is another one of those vague words that actually covers a range of roles. Supervisors can be line managers, responsible for personal and role issues. They can be work coordinators, responsible for matching people to tasks. They can be experts, the go-to person for tricky problems. They can be quality monitors, checking that tasks are done correctly. They may need to be all of these things, but may, may not realise the importance of some aspects of their job. A classic problem is when the supervisor thinks that their role is managing productivity and performance, but where the system assumes that the supervisor is managing correctness and safety. As you might imagine, I've left out heaps of performance-shaping factors from this list. I've said nothing about the design of the workspace, the design of the equipment, the amount and type of documentation, training, or culture. All of these things are important too. One final caveat. Individual behaviour does matter. Nothing that I've said about performance shaping is inconsistent with recognising that non-technical skills are important and encouraging the development of good decision-making, good teamwork, self-awareness, and situation awareness. The message I want to send is that shaping the environment people work in is at least as important as fostering their individual skills. The BAC-111 is a short-haul passenger jet first flown in the 1960s. On 10th of June 1990, a BAC-111 flying as British Airways Flight 5390 was flying at 17,000 feet over Oxfordshire when the window on the captain's side of the aircraft burst away, sucking the captain with it. His head and body were out of the window, and his legs became trapped around the control column, pulling the aircraft into a rolling dive. The sudden decompression ripped the flight deck door off its hinges, and it fell across the controls. The co-pilot, Alastair Acheson, was faced with a 400 mile an hour wind screaming through his cockpit, an aircraft spiralling downward through busy traffic, a door and half a captain blocking his controls, and the other half of the captain hanging out the window. One of the stewards, about to serve the captain breakfast, instead found himself desperately hanging on to the captain's legs to stop him falling out. Under these rather trying conditions, the co-pilot managed to regain control of the aircraft. He was directed to land at Southampton, an unfamiliar airport. The runway at Southampton 
was 400 metres too short for the type of aircraft, and the wings were still full of fuel. By this stage, another two stewards had arrived to assist, but the captain was not moving. They kept hold of him, because even if he was dead, his body might damage the wing or engine as it fell. In the end, the co-pilot landed successfully, and the captain survived. The physical cause of this accident was depressingly simple. The windscreens on BAC-111s are supposed to be fastened with British Standard A2118D bolts. On this aircraft, the windscreen was accidentally fastened with British Standard A2118C bolts. The shift manager, who had fitted the window, made a mistake and used bolts that were too narrow. If we wanted to be simplistic, we could say that this was a human error by the maintainer, rescued through heroic performance by the co-pilot. But really, we don't want to be simplistic. We want to understand what caused these people to behave in the way they did. Let's start with the maintainer. Instead of thinking about what he could have done differently, let's consider what else could have been different. The BAC-111 could have been designed so that air pressure held the windscreen on instead of needing tightly fastened bolts. That's the way most aircraft are designed. The bolt holes could have been designed so that it was impossible to insert and tighten the wrong sized bolts. The bolts could have been designated as safety critical items instead of just as uncontrolled consumables. The procedure for changing the bolts could have been better designed as well. The maintainer was supposed to consult a database to find the correct part number, but the database was slow and hard to use. The bolts were stored in a poorly labelled carousel, in a poorly lit work area. There was no built-in mechanism to check that the right parts were used, or even to check that the job was done properly. The maintenance organisation could have been better designed. Shift managers supervised the work of other maintainers but there was no one to supervise the shift managers when they acted as maintainers. The fatigue management system didn't take into account body rhythms associated with shift patterns. The quality management system was spotting lots of minor part defects, but it wasn't being used to flag major issues, like the fact that the carousel was poorly labelled. This was a situation that was inviting, almost forcing maintenance error and providing no means to detect the error when it occurred. Now, let's look at the aircrew, and we'll start with something so obvious you may have missed it. Passenger jets always have at least two pilots, and they are never short-staffed. If one of the pilots is busy handling an emergency, or talking to air traffic control, or hanging out of a window, the other pilot is there to take over some of the workload. When the first steward to enter the cockpit started suffering from fatigue and frostbite, another steward was right there to take over holding the captain. Secondly, the crew didn't hang around asking for someone to tell them what to do. They understood what needed to be done, and they trusted the others to do their jobs too. This doesn't happen by accident. It's the result of training, experience, and a work environment that fosters teamwork. The cockpit was designed so that even when a pretty unexpected situation put a number of the controls out of action, there was enough functionality left for the co-pilot to land the aircraft. 
None of this takes away from the skill and professionalism of co-pilot Alastair Acheson. It does show, though, that if we want humans to make this sort of contribution, we have to give them the right conditions to make it possible. Since this is an episode about the fallibility of humans, we ought to consider the alternative. If we applied the same criteria to humans as we did to other system components, humans would be weeded out by even the most gung-ho engineering department. Human quality control is so bad that you can't guarantee the size, shape, colour or weight of any given operator. We make random mistakes far more often than even desktop software, and we're prone to sudden catastrophic failure. We're incredibly sensitive to environmental conditions, and we start to fail if the temperature is too hot, too cold, too wet, or too dry. Isn't it about time we were replaced? In 1965, Irving John Good published a paper called Speculations Concerning the First ultra-intelligent machine. His ideas were similar to what Werner Vinge named the singularity. An ultra-intelligent machine would be better at all intellectual tasks than humans. This would include, of course, the design of even better machines. So the first ultra-intelligent machine would be the last thing humans would ever need to invent. The first machine would invent others, which would invent others, which would invent others. In fact, some people talk about both the intelligence singularity, as they get smarter, and the speed singularity, where they get faster and faster at inventing new machines. Good didn't pull his punches about the implications of such an idea. The very first sentence of his paper reads, The survival of man depends on the early construction of an ultra-intelligent machine. The singularity has been heavily popularised by the writer Ray Kurzweil, most notably in his book The Singularity is Near. Kurzweil is also mainly positive about the possibility. The philosopher David Chalmers gives a very readable analysis of the key questions regarding a singularity. Number one, is it going to happen? His answer is a qualified yes unless we destroy civilization first, or we actively try to stop the singularity happening. When is it going to happen? His answer is that it's almost certainly going to happen within hundreds of years, possibly within decades, qualified by the fact that AI research has a bad habit of finding unexpected bottlenecks. Will the singularity be a good thing? This is where things get complicated. The underlying question is what values will future artificial intelligences hold, and will they be compatible with the values that humans hold dear? At one end, it would be possible to build a singularity bomb, an intelligence with the sole goal of destroying the planet, and the capability to make itself better and better until it achieved its goal. At the other end, it might be possible to choose the values that artificial intelligences hold. So long as we choose wisely, 
the future could be rosy. My personal worry is that given how bad we are at writing software requirements, the future could be roses. Literally, nothing but roses. There are some deep philosophical questions here. We know that humans aren't perfect, and some of the things we actually value are things that we probably shouldn't. What happens if we do have the opportunity to create creatures that are more moral than ourselves? Should we create such creatures, and what will they think of us if we do? Some writers worry that they would replace us, or destroy us. My fear is that they would pity us. Both the David Chalmers paper and the Irving John Good paper are publicly available. I'll put links in the show notes. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. You can find transcripts and show notes at disastercast.co.uk. Please do visit and leave a comment if you've enjoyed the show. Questions and ideas for topics you'd like covered are always welcome. DisasterCast is made possible by an award from I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here. The theme tune is A Disaster Anthem by Eden Prayer.